0: We thank you that they are a blessing from you. We thank you for their little voices uh, singing praise to you. We thank you that you think of us as your children and you provide for us and you protect us and you discipline us sometimes, but it's always meant for our good and it's always meant to grow us. So Lord, we thank you for being that good and perfect father for us, uh, that we can always trust in you uh, no matter what season we're going through. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning, that your truth may be buried deep within us and and bear fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone here has most likely heard of the Polaroid camera, right? Everybody here here, uh, heard of the Polaroid camera. Most everyone has had at least one Polaroid photo taken of them at some point in their lives. Some of you even may have a shoebox somewhere with a whole stash of these Polaroid pictures and written on the back of them is so and so and and the date on there. The novelty of it ever since its invention was the possibility of an instantly developed photo. You didn't have to take film somewhere and have it developed. I recently got a kick out of a new attachment you can buy. I saw it in the store. And attach it to your smartphone where you can instantly print out uh, the different pictures you take with your phone. Take a picture with your phone, and then this new attachment uh, prints out a Polaroid version of it for you. Even with smartphones, there's still this excitement of having a print of a picture pretty much instantaneously. When we visit some place or celebrate a momentous occasion, we try to take as many pictures as we can. Why? Because we know our brains can only hold so much and eventually they'll get filled to overflowing with multiple responsibilities and tasks and what we need to buy at the grocery store and what time we need to be somewhere. And looking at those pictures can bring back memories we had thought we had forgotten all about. I found this cool post on Facebook this past week which takes certain locations that are rich with history and takes a modern day photo of that location with an overlay of that exact same location with what happened there in the past. I just wanted to share a few of these. Some of these are pretty wild. The first one here, you get an idea of what I'm talking about. Here's uh, Germany, and you can see the overlay there. You see the guy talking on his cell phone. That's the modern day part of it. But well, you see the overlay in back of him. That's the, the Berlin Wall there, uh, 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 separating East and West Germany. So this, this second one is a little bit more wild than that. You see the crash of the, 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 of the Hindenburg there. I don't think that guy and his pet dog would be that calm if that was actually happening behind them there. And thirdly, we have this pretty sobering one here of uh, a little girl and, and her mother or her grandmother at the beach, the very same beach that the Allied forces stormed on D-Day. Time has a way of erasing different things from our memories. It helps to remember the sheer gravity of different events by seeing how and where they took place. In the same way, our brains are always full to overflowing with our different responsibilities, tasks, opinions, and ideas, that we forget the truths of God and His Word. How do we cope with the different seasons in our lives? What are we to focus on as we go through these different seasons of our lives? We're going to look at a passage today where we take a look at three different categories, three different people slash groups of people. They are all in different seasons of our lives. What this passage looks like is someone taking a picture to capture that moment in time in order to study and remember. This morning, God wants us to see these snapshots of seasons in our Bible passage today, in order to remember what He wants us to know. So, the first point that we're coming to uh, in in our passage today is the seasons of prosperity, seasons of having prosperity, and seasons of lacking prosperity. Seasons of prosperity can occur at any point of, of your life, especially in lives today. You can start out in prosperity and then lose everything. You can start with nothing, and then all of a sudden find, in your, find yourself in a prosperous position. You can start with nothing, have prosperity, and then lose it. Or you can start out with prosperity, live with prosperity, and die with prosperity. Or you can start with nothing, continue with nothing, and die with nothing. That last one's probably the most familiar. <laughs> But in all these seasons of prosperity, or lack thereof, God still wants us to grow. Over this past week, our our VBSers learned all, all about this man named Joseph in the biblical book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, all his ups and downs, and all that he had learned about himself and about God through it all. Our passage this morning picks up at the very end of the story. This is where we're coming at, at the very end of the story. So we'll be reviewing events that have already taken place to see how they connect to what happens at the end. So if you brought your Bible with you, we're in Genesis chapter 47, and we're going to be in verse 1. If you didn't bring one with you, that's perfectly fine. Oh, he didn't tell you you had to. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, it's the first book of the Bible, so if you start at the beginning and keep flipping, you'll get there. We're in Genesis chapter 47, and we're in verse 1, and I want everybody to see this. Verse 1 we read, Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. Now at first glance, this doesn't seem like much other than Joseph telling Pharaoh what's going on. But if we we view this experience in light of Joseph's whole life, which we're going to see, we begin to see the bigger picture of what he's saying here. Joseph started out with, more or less, a prosperous life. He had everything handed to him on a silver platter. He had the life that all of us would want. He was his father's favorite son out of 11 other sons and was marked as such by a coat of many colors or a tunic, it was a long-sleeved jacket, a fit for royalty that his father Jacob had made especially for him. Joseph enjoyed a childhood of favoritism and very little work. In fact, he was sent out to another region by his and his brother's father in order for him to go check up on them. What this means is that where wasn't he at the time? He wasn't with them working the same exact job they were doing in the first place, when he very well could have when at age 17 and probably in the best shape of his life. To support this observation, the coat that was especially made for him was noted by its long sleeves. Long sleeves on a piece of clothing was meant to show that the wearer was not meant for manual labor, but to sit in a position of authority and look pretty, more or less. You weren't supposed to dirty this thing up. Not only that, but around that same time, God gave Joseph two dreams, meaning the same exact thing. That Joseph, in Joseph's mind anyway, would continue to have a position of authority all the way to having actual authority over his elder brothers and even his parents. And then, without warning, Joseph's life was thrown from a life of prosperity and promise, most likely getting the firstborn share of inheritance instead of his eldest brother, straight into a life of destitution. Having had enough of the favoritism shown towards their younger brother and wanting to prevent those dreams that he was having from ever coming true, Joseph's older brothers sold him into slavery to go down to Egypt. Joseph went from secure with his family, feeling safe, feeling provided for in the land of Canaan, to slave in the foreign country of Egypt. He went from being in a presumed position of authority straight to the lowest position under authority. Joseph was humiliated, starved, beaten, and made to do the worst jobs of his master's household. And when I say originally forced to do the worst jobs of the household... Think of emptying everyone else's chamber pots every morning. That's what I'm talking about here. Joseph still didn't give up his faith in God, though. Even in the most difficult and humiliating circumstances, Joseph worked his hardest. He gave glory to God and worked his way up to the position of being in charge over his master's entire household, second only to the master himself. Joseph had once again entered a position of somewhat prosperity and influence. But even then, God wasn't done with Joseph. God still had some work to do on Joseph's heart. So Joseph was continually sexually harassed by his master's wife. And when he continually refused to give in, what did she do? She turned around and accused him of forcing himself on her, told her husband, Joseph's master, about it. And Joseph was thrown into prison for something he didn't even do. And in essence, for doing exactly what he knew was pleasing in God's sight. So Joseph was once again thrown from prosperity to destitution, and now had lost his freedom to even enjoy some fresh air. But even then... Joseph still didn't give up his faith in God. Eventually, through divine providence and God-given correct interpretation of dreams of especially one in close contact of the king of Egypt himself, Joseph was brought before the king of Egypt. After showing God-given wisdom from years of close friendship with God, the king was so impressed with Joseph that Joseph was put in the highest position of authority in Egypt, second only to the king himself. The one of the most wonderful Cinderella stories, rags to riches, right? Joseph once again enters his last position of authority. But this time, As a man who has experienced great growth in his life, he has experienced hunger, fatigue, hopelessness, darkness, depression, and struggling with maintaining his faith in God, even as all these unfair things were happening to him. Joseph has learned what it means to be humble. He isn't just paying lip service to it. He knows what it means to be humble. He has experienced God's grace and provision, even in the most hopeless of circumstances. He has experienced God's faithful love, even in the most unkind and humiliating situations. His faith has grown exponentially over these years. Joseph now has the humility, wisdom, and faith to handle A position of authority. A great position at that. See, if Joseph had merely remained where he was in his thinking when he was a boy, authority would have gone straight where? Straight to his head, right? He wouldn't have been able to fit through those doors. His head would have been so big. Which merely... Indeed, the prospect of it already had gone to his head when he was a boy. And Joseph probably would have been one in authority who merely did as he pleased, did whatever he wanted, without respect for anyone else, essentially ruining his and many other people's lives. But now Joseph has definitely learned respect and humility And he's learned it through the most difficult of circumstances. So when he's presented with this new situation that we just read in verse 1 of chapter 47, he still knows the proper way to act. And what position am I talking about? Here are Joseph's brothers and Joseph through God's grace and forgiveness. And Joseph wants to do the very best for them a famine back in their home country forced Joseph's brothers and father to be dramatically reunited with Joseph. Because of Joseph's extreme heart transformation, Joseph not only forgives his brothers, which in and of itself is a miracle, but now that in his position of power in Egypt, he wants to give his brothers a good chunk of land just outside of Egypt proper. In his humanity, Joseph, no doubt, just wants to hand over this land uh, of Goshen to his brothers. Because after all, he's the governor of Egypt and he could probably do whatever he wanted. He had, after all, saved the king of Egypt from almost certain assassination by his own people due to uh, a terrible famine. So Joseph could very well have given the land of Goshen over to his brothers and said, deal with it to the king. But Joseph knew ultimately from whom his position of authority came from and so wanted to live his life in accordance with being the best representative of God that he could. And he therefore shows that respect to the king of the universe by showing it to the king of Egypt. Joseph shows that respect by going through the proper channels and doing things the way that Egyptian government had set them up. The first way of doing this was to approach Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let him know that his brothers were in the land and presenting them to Pharaoh to make their request to live in the land of Goshen. That's what happens in verses 2 through 4. We read, he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, only be here temporarily, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. So what can we take from this snapshot of a season of prosperity? If you are in a season of prosperity, don't forget who ultimately gave you that season who ultimately gave you that season of prosperity. Don't let that prosperity all go to your head. Always remember that your life as a representative of Christ is the most important position you can have, no matter what your earthly position is. We often use this verse in connection to doing a job, especially a job that is humiliating, and we read in Colossians chapter 3, work willingly at whatever you do, Whatever you do, doesn't matter how humiliating or difficult it is. Why, as though you were working for the Lord rather for, than any human boss. Remember that the Lord doesn't matter how your boss treats you. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you really are serving isn't that human boss. The master you're really serving is Christ Himself, and so we work. At whatever position God has given to us, as though we are serving God Himself. Whatever you're doing, whether it's a job just to make ends meet, or it's a job that affords you some prosperity, never forget who you're really working for and who has given you that position. As with everything, even in a position of prosperity, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Fatter check. More more luxury and live righteously, and He will give you everything you need. May not be everything you want, but He'll give you everything that you need. So we talked about the season of prosperity, lack of prosperity. Secondly, we're going to talk about uh, seasons of transition in our lives. Now we go from a snapshot of someone in a season of authority and prosperity and we go to a group of people in a life transition. Joseph's brothers have gone through a major spiritual transition and now are facing a physical life transition. They have gone from ruthless warriors and captors and sellers of slaves, even from their own family, to humble, father-respecting, loyally loving brothers. If you remember, if you've read through the book of Genesis, and if you haven't, that's fine. You can find all of this in the book of Genesis. Earlier on, this group of brothers that Joseph wants to give this land to, these are the very same men who sought revenge for the prince of a city named Shechem, forcing himself on their only sister Dinah, by then deceiving and attacking that city, killing all the city's men and capturing its women and children. These were cold-hearted men. Some of the brothers married some of the women, but their hearts were so evil that we can surmise that they most likely sold the rest of the women and children as slaves to other people groups. These guys were evil dudes. They were an abomination to the rest of the ancient world and a huge embarrassment to their father. It was only by the grace of God and the preservation of the family he had made a promise to that God did not annihilate these guys immediately after they did this. Then these guys let their evil calloused hearts direct them to want to kill their own brother Joseph but then sell him as a slave instead. Now, that's nice. After that we find out that one brother, Judah, throws himself both spiritually and physically into the pagan Canaanite world and un- ends up unknowingly having relations with and impregnating his own daughter-in-law. You think this stuff only happens these days. You see the things these guys did were certainly not G-rated. You can see the chaotic, lawless compromising, evil, and out-of-control lives of Joseph's brothers. We don't know much of what went on after Judah's experience, but in between that experience and the great famine hitting Canaan, much spiritual change happened in Joseph's brothers' hearts. They went from being blatantly disrespectful to their father, to being willing to put their lives on the line for him. They went from brother hater, to being undyingly loyal to each other and the new favorite brother, Benjamin. They went from probably being suicidal for what they had done to their brother, Joseph, after they had changed, and he revealed himself to them in Egypt, to being able to accept forgiveness and move on in living in a more heightened sensitivity towards God than ever before. But now Joseph's brothers are facing a physical life transition, They had been shepherds their whole lives. Their father had been a shepherd, quite a successful one at that. And all that wisdom had been passed down to them as shepherds. I'm sure they were commanding quite a massive and lucrative flock of animals at this point. However, shepherding was all they had ever known. And now the great famine had stolen all of that from them. Now they had to go buy grain from a foreign government, and they had no idea how much longer this famine would last, much less the rest of their flock of sheep. And now that Joseph has revealed himself to them as the governor of Egypt, and the king of Egypt was insisting that they move to Egypt, they had no idea what fate awaited them. Put yourself in their shoes. They had no idea what was going to happen to them. Egyptians were notorious for being extremely discriminatory towards Hebrews. Joseph's brothers had no idea if they would be forced to get the bottom of the barrel jobs or if they could even be shepherds anymore at that. This was a major potential transition for them. All they had ever known was changing right before their very eyes. And yet their focus is revealed in what they say to Pharaoh. Verse 4 again. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn, to be temporary residents in the land. For there is no pasture for your father's flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. You see what they say here? They only want to live in Egypt for a temporary while. Presumably only as long as the famine lasts in Canaan. Now before, these guys only had hearts for earthly gain. They wanted what the pagan people groups around them already had, and they were willing to sacrifice their faith to get it. Now here they are in a position where their brother is in very high authority in Egypt, in Egyptian government, and could probably get them pretty decent affluent jobs with room to grow and make even more money, but their focus is on returning back to Canaan. There was nothing special about Canaan other than that it was the land that God had promised to their their family. So instead of placing their focus on gaining wealth and influence in Egypt, they placed their focus on where God ultimately wanted them back. Now obviously that changes through the years, as you see in the book of Exodus. But again, even in this place of transition where anything could happen, either getting worse jobs or better jobs, a worse life or a better life, their focus is on what God wanted them to do. Some of you are in a, transition, a season of transition. Obviously, God doesn't want us to sit around waiting for him to drop something out of the sky for us, but in whatever you're doing, your focus needs to continue to be on him. Whatever transition you're facing, your anchor needs to be in God. That's the one constant. Life is fluid. Everyone here knows that. You can be in one phase of your life where you think you have it all together, right? And then everything is thrown up in the air, out of nowhere. You can think you're secure and then lose everything a second later. You think you can count on something or someone And suddenly that person or entity isn't there anymore. Nothing in life is sure except for one thing. And that's the only thing that matters. Nothing in life is sure except for God. Nothing in life is sure except for God's faithfulness, love, and peace. Nothing could be secure in your life, but you could still have peace. Nothing may be secure in your life, but you can still have peace. Why? Because it doesn't and cannot come from anywhere else except from God. And if you look that up in the book, New Testament book of Galatians, that's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. This is a verse that we always need to keep in mind, especially as we face that season of transition and nothing is the way that it was supposed to be and nothing is the way that we want it to be. Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your circumstances will change a million times in your life. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is your anchor. Even in the storms of life, even when they toss you to and fro, and you have no idea where you're going, and you can't see what's in front of you, even as other people's advice and opinions about your situation change and you don't have any clear direction, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Life always changes, but God never changes. Here's a verse from the Bible that's pretty blatant about that. I am the Lord and I do not change. Well, there you go. Can't get any clearer than that. And here's another one from the New Testament. Whatever is good and perfect as a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens, He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He never changes. So, as you're facing a time of change in your life, still keep your focus on the God who never changes. His word lasts forever and His promises last forever. His love, guidance, and wisdom never change. When we recognize that we're sinners separated by God from, by that sin and only restored to Him through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus, we become a part of God's family. We become God's children. And we have the promise that He will always remain faithful to us. Here in Joseph's brothers' experience, they are granted exactly what God wants them to have, verses 5 through 6. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of even my livestock." Now, Joseph settles his brothers in Goshen, which is just outside of Egypt proper, because this is to ensure that both the job that would be easiest to do back in Canaan, shepherding, would be passed down to the next generations, and the faith in the one true God would be passed down to the next generations. Goshen was sort of the farmland on the outskirts of Egypt, close enough to be under Egypt's protection, but far enough away so that the faith in the one true God would be preserved and not get sucked into Egypt's poly- polyistic religion. So we, have, we looked at seasons of prosperity, we looked at seasons of transition, and thirdly, we're going to look at seasons of wisdom. Now we come to the last season described here, and that is the season of wisdom, verses 7 through 12. Then Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? How old are you? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are one hundred and thirty. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. The last person we're taking a look at here is Jacob, Joseph's and Joseph's brother's father. Jacob had been through it all. He started out as more or less a pagan in his practical thinking. He had no interest in God. He had no interest in thinking about God. But then God developed a relationship with Jacob, during which Jacob wrestled spiritually and even physically at one point with God as he struggled to trust God with every area of his life. Jacob went through several transitions in his life to run away, to shepherd, to runaway shepherd, to moving back to Canaan, to losing his beloved wife, to losing his son, to experiencing the great famine, to discovering that his son is still alive, to now being brought before the highest authority in Egypt. That's a full life, isn't it? That's a lot to go through. Jacob had dealt with his fair share of parental distress. Those of you here with grown children or children that are going through uh, those fun Teenage years, you think you're alone in your thinking as you think back on on your kids being raised. Jacob had his fair share of parental distress. Jacob had to deal with feeling like a failure as a parent. He had to deal with that. He had to deal with seeing what his sons had become when they deceived and attacked an entire city. They were cold-blooded murderers with no remorse in their hearts, even when Jacob confronted them about what they had done. I don't care. We did what we needed to do. They were cold-blooded murderers. Jacob had to deal with his children, disrespecting him as their father. In fact, his eldest son, the one whom Jacob had spent the most time with, the one who had made Jacob a father in the first place, the one who was to carry on the family name, He not only disrespected Jacob, but he emasculated him. Jacob's eldest son, Reuben, thought to himself, my dad is too old to have my respect anymore, and it's high time I took over the family. So in order to force that to happen by uh, by way of uh, of doing what was done back in these days and location, Reuben went and slept with Jacob's concubine while Jacob was out of town in his own bed. Imagine the shame, dishonor, and traumatic embarrassment that this caused Jacob. Everyone in the family knew what happened. Everyone knew how Jacob had been disrespected and shamed. And so naturally, obviously, Jacob questioned his whole season of parenthood by the end of his life. What did I do? What did I do wrong? Not only that, but Jacob had dealt with his fair share of family betrayal. His uncle and eventual father-in-law betrayed Jacob and treated Jacob like his enemy. Jacob went through seasons that all of us will or have gone through. And now he is in the season of wisdom. Even through all of that, what does Jacob do here in in, in this passage? He blesses Pharaoh by his faith in the one true God. He didn't lose that. In fact, it grew Jacob has still not given up his faith and in fact uses it to touch the highest authority of Egypt with the truth of the one true God. The different painful and difficult seasons in your life are not who you are. They're not who you are. They are not what defines you. They are merely instruments. They are merely tools that God uses to make you into the person that He wants you to be. If you have given your life to God through faith in Jesus, you are a child of God. You are not in any one season of your life. You are set apart by your Heavenly Father to craft into a work of heart and therefore a work of art. Similarly, each season of our lives, no matter how traumatic or difficult, is exactly that. Not the end, but a season. Your life can still touch others' lives with the wisdom and faith that God has given to you throughout the years and throughout these experiences that you've had. If you're in a season of wisdom and you have lots of life experiences, you can use those to touch somebody else's life. You are not over, you still have work to do. Don't check out. You still have a responsibility to mentor the next generation no matter how young or old you think you are. In fact, you have the greatest responsibility you've ever had in your entire life at this point. And that is to use what God has taught you to teach those coming after you. Each of us is going through a different season. But it doesn't matter what season you're in right now. Our focus should still be the same. And that is placing our focus not on the season itself, Not on what we're going through, but on God and what He's teaching us in the season we're in right here and right now. We have no idea what's going to happen down the road. We have no idea what's going to happen in the future. But one thing we do know, God is God. and He will never change. And He will see us through. Then in the next season, the same thing also happens. No matter what season we're in, we can still bear fruit of faith. We can still bear fruit of faith. It may be a crushing season, but even in that, we can still bear fruit of faith. We can still show promise. We can still live out faith. The Bible talks about those who find their joy and happiness in God, no matter what season they're in. And this is what we're going to close with. And this is the reference that we have on the front of our bulletin here that you got when you first came in today. Psalm 1 describes these people like this. They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. doesn't matter what season it is. They still bear fruit. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a summarized look at Joseph's life. We thank you for what it teaches us, what it draws out from your word for us, what we can take and make a part of who we are, make a part of our lives. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just walk out these doors today and completely forget about everything we just talked about. But Lord, I pray that it would stick with us, that it's got its claws in us, and that we'll think about it tonight, and we'll think about it as we're trying to fall asleep, and we'll think about how you never change And you will always remain faithful to us. And that you will always have something to grow in our lives, no matter what season we're going through. We thank you for that. We thank you that you don't leave us where you find us, but you continually make us into the person that you want us to be. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we close out.